All right, y'all. Welcome to the Catch Up Foodies Weekly Podcast for discussions about the latest food news. Food news. Food news. It's hosted by your boys Jeff and Eli, co-founders of Food Beast. Mm-hmm. What's good, Jeff? We good? We good. Um, this week we got a really dope topic. Uh, food's been kind of adopted and blended by different cultures from the, since the beginning of time, um, but there's a, there's a bit of food authenticity uh, issues we want to talk about this week. Yeah, so millennial restaurateurs of all colors are opening hundreds, if not thousands, of new concepts really all across the nation. What are the rules? What are the do's and don'ts? What's happening? We're going to explore the topic here today on The Ketchup. Yep. Braden, what's our intro music sound like? So we couldn't have this conversation without our boy Thomas Fam. T Fam. At hey. T Fam on Instagram. Yo, what up, what up, what up? Uh, he's one of the key players in bringing the humongous success story that is the Halal Guys chain all the way to the West Coast. He's also, you're an owner of Slick Media, which is a really dope uh, agency that represents yep. restaurants kind of all across the coast. Um, and uh, no better guest, I feel. Welcome, bro. No, I appreciate it, man. Uh, definitely excited to be here. You know, I've, I've heard you guys' stuff all the time, and you guys always have some really cool things, but uh, excited for having you guys invite me in. Name yeah. one episode, bro. <laughs> no, I seen the last one, if you want to talk about that one, you know. <laughs> that, was, that was good, like vaguely specific the last one <laughs> thomas is a professional he's a Yo, professional. biggest food beast fan you guys ever seen uh, no we love thomas we love thomas um dude tell us a little bit about halal guys right now like you guys started off as a cart in new york right yeah, yeah. so there's you know halal guys is this um we you know we call it like new york street food so it's a cart that sits on 56 and third there's like four carts out there and then now they got a, a two brick and mortar 14th street and they got one in uh, on 95th in mm-hmm. amsterdam so they've been, they just serve, you know, chicken, um, beef gyro over rice, mm-hmm. and they got this crazy white sauce and this like flaming explosive hot sauce. Not even like regular hot. It's super hot. That super hot. hot. It's too hot. Effed me up, man. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff does not co-sign the hot sauce. No. I mean, look, I co-sign the hot sauce for spicy people. I'm just not a spicy person. And so it's yeah. halal though is, uh, give us a little background on what halal actually is, because I I'm Middle Eastern Lebanese, but I actually like could at first before I had halal guys, I didn't really know what halal meant, like dietary wise, religious, yeah. religious. Yeah, wise. yeah. So you know, um, you know, for the Muslims, you know, they eat, uh, you know, halal food, and for us, it's just really responsibly sourced meats. Um, and you know, even for us, uh, when we they, they talk about like where we get our meats and where we get our food from, you know, all the information is on our website to make sure that you know we're sourcing from the right places and we have the right quality meats. Um, and so in New York City, what's really cool is when when you visit New York first time, fifth time, the seventieth time. You're gonna stop by the carts for sure. True, um, and it's different. It, it's you're, you're eating in the streets of New York City, um, and it's I guess the third most yelped restaurant in the world, That's which what is I hear. crazy. Uh, and so in New York City, it's the staple. You got to go check it out. Um, and there's a bunch of restaurants on every corner, but you got to still stop by the Halal Guys every single time. You know? So did you guys, when you were thinking about a restaurant to open, right, or thinking about which is now expanding to how many restaurants do you have in SoCal right now? Uh, we got we got seven open. Uh, Tustin Grand, Grand opens uh, in a couple weeks, and then we got uh, Roland Heights right after that. So we'll have nine by the end of the year. Jeez. So you're gonna have nine locations in a what? It, you've been open for a year and a half, two yeah, maybe years. Two years. Yeah, like two That's years and a little bit. Cr- so when, yeah. so before you're opening, before you go through all the training, what's your thought process of? I'm gonna open up Halal Guys and I'm gonna do whatever I can to to get that opportunity. For everyone at home, Thomas is Vietnamese. <laughs> 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 he's basically bringing, 
this could be the, the biggest Middle Eastern food chain in California and, and it's brought to you by your co- you and your cohorts of, yeah. of Vietnamese guys. Like, what's going on? Yeah, so, you know, when we came out of New York for the first time, I had it, I had it with one of my buddies, which is actually one of my partners now. And I was like, dude, this food is really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. And we ate it, I know it was really good because we ate it three times in three days. <laughs> yeah. So we knew it was lit. So um, we, we said right there, and then I said, dude, if we ever open a restaurant, we would open these guys. And it was, I guess, this must have been six, seven years ago, eight years ago already. Wow, so it was that long into making. Yeah, this was when we first started Slick Media. So we were doing restaurant marketing mm-hmm. back then, and we we're like, you know, thinking about restaurants and concepts, even though you thought about restaurant marketing very different back then than we do today, you know, with social media. But we knew if we ever opened something, it would only be the halal guys. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that's the concept that you, own, that you own and operate out here. Like, that's what, that's what, you, that's what you got going on. Yeah. Well, where was halal guys when you, when you were thinking about that? Where was halal guys at? And their mindset of wanting to, did they even want to bring their restaurant to other locations? Or where did that fall between you wanting to expand and were they like in line with that at the time when you wanted to do that? No, I think during the time that we originally wanted to, you know, bug them about, they, they weren't ready yet. And I'm sure they get thousands of inquiries, you know, every month, you know. But um, slowly, I think, you know, for them, it's, it's so hard to make sure that the food quality stays the same, right? How does somebody cook in the same food? You know, two thousand miles away, making sure that it tastes the same as New York City, because these guys have been doing this for twenty-five years, yeah. I think like twenty-seven years now. So, the the food authenticity, um, the quality of the food is so important to them. How do you can trust in somebody else's hands? And that's really the worry I think they had. Mm-hmm. And so, I think internally they wanted to make sure that they had the right systems and processes in place to make sure that somebody on you know the West Coast or in, in Houston or San Francisco could cook the food right. Yeah. So, outside of New York or Southern California, the Second location, yeah. They wow. shot, Chicago was the first one outside of New York City, and then uh, Costa Mesa was the second one. Wow. And, and yeah. so what's the, what's the process or protocol to make sure that that quality is, is the same, right? Because no matter who you are, whether you're the Chicago entrepreneur or you're the Bay Area entrepreneur, you're guys in Southern California, what's that process like to ensure that what we're getting here is as close to as possible to what's in New York? Yeah, so we, you know, we, it looks pretty easy, right? I mean, it's not like we're cooking 42 different items on the menu. Sure. It's literally protein over rice with a little bit of lettuce, tomato, mm. the sauce you pour right on top, right? Mm. So for us, we thought it would be pretty simple, but it's difficult. So they, we took our managers and the executive team, so a bunch of us, we, and lived out in New York for 30 days. And oh, wow. we, we were, I mean, it was like Navy SEAL training. Were y'all working the, tr- <laughs> y'all work the carts out there? Yeah, so we worked in, you know, like a, a tr- you know, training kitchen for a long time before they finally let us into the stores. And then we worked in the stores for a long time until they finally let us like hang out at the carts. And so we've been chopping chicken at the carts too out there. But we would train for 30 days, like straight almost, like nine, 10 hours yeah, a day. I would have paid so much money to see you <laughs> alongside all the Middle Eastern long guys. I'm going to send you some photos, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Yeah. So you're literally chopping chicken on the cart serving in guests. New York, yeah, serving absolutely. guests. Wow. I did not know that. I mean, I saw the photos of you being in store and a lot of the training that was happening in store. But yeah, that was definitely one of my questions. Like, were you on the iconic cart, you know? <laughs> I mean, uh, we may have been on a cart across the street, but you know, we're out there. <laughs> yeah, they put you on, on cart B. <laughs> yeah, cart B with no line, you know? Oh, man. Thomas, don't def- talk to customers. <laughs> It definitely is a staple. Did you have any uh, challenges? Because it's definitely a cultural thing in New York. Like things are open super late, right? Like what was the process like picking Costa Mesa as the first one? Because New York, like you have a great night, you're going to end it with halal. It's fun, but it's like three or four in the morning. Like 
What's up I, with that? You know, I think out here, you know, we find real estate so tough. I mean, expensive, it's tough. And, and when the, the, the kind of the obstacles we ran into is the landlords out here didn't really know that much about the brand. Mm. So even if you, you know, at that time, let's say two and a half years ago, when there was no stores on the West Coast, if 100 customers walked past you, 100 people, and you asked every single one, do you know what the Law Guys is? I mean, maybe 90-something and say no. They've never heard of it before. And New York and L.A. are, like, connected, too, you know? Um, but... What we did was we finally, you know, really took the time to educate the landlords and let them know. And we actually went to a plaza that was like almost abandoned. You know, mm. half the plaza was nothing there. But we knew Costa Mesa. We knew it was the heart of Costa Mesa. And even till this day, like if we were going to go out and grab dinner or something, we would still all head out to Costa Mesa. Yeah. Um, so I think it had a a lot of, um, you know, almost a little bit of luck us choosing the right location because it wasn't a plaza that was popping before. Yeah. Um, but thank goodness, you know, now it's it's a great plaza to be in. Yeah. And what made you choose? So Costa Mesa, for those of you guys don't know, is a city within Orange County and not too far from the Food Beast headquarters. What made you choose Costa Mesa before all the Los Angeles locations? Yeah, downtown LA, which you're open in now, makes a lot more sense, to be honest, as a first location. like Especially why- from a media market perspective, I would think, yeah. I mean... Food beast is out here, but there's not, there's, not, there's not a ton of us out here in the OC. So yeah, so um, you know, most people would think that the the first law guys on the West Coast would be San Francisco or, or Los Angeles downtown proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but again, you know, these the real estate in downtown is really hard to get into too. You mm-hmm. got to have a pretty strong track record. We had not opened any restaurants here, so a lot of brands, you know, that have been from another area, you know, ta- Canada, New York, wherever that's really famous, coming to Southern California, a lot of them don't make it. You know, and we can probably think of some brands now that are really famous on the East Coast that are here and, and maybe not doing as well as, you know, they like to do. Sure. Uh, so for us, going to downtown, landlords are really, really picky about who they're going to put in there. Uh, it was just a little bit easier getting Coast Mesa. And Coast Mesa is our backyard. And we wanted to have all the team members, all eyes on the brand at all times. Uh, so it's just a lot easier logistically. So you're able to show off your fat lines at the Costa Mesa one, take pictures, open the next one. Like I think was it Long Beach? Long Beach. So you picked a yeah. good metro in Long Beach, yeah. and then you use that to kind of leverage getting into downtown LA. Right. So now that we we do have a little bit more leverage and a little bit clout because landlords know we're going to be able to pay the rent, but now we're going after bigger and better spots. Mm. And now we're going after okay, well the landlord's got to choose between Halal Guys, Chipotle, or In and Out and Chase Bank, you know, which one are they going to choose? <laughs> Who's going to pay the bills? You know, and it's still tough. So now that we do have clout, we're going after better locations, but with better locations comes bigger competitors. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So 10 years ago, do you think that it's likely that a group of predominantly Asian American, Asian Americans had the chance to bring ethnic cuisine like halal guys to, to masses? Like, is that even possible 10 years ago? Is that, is that a now thing? You know, it's hard to say because, you know, we were in the marketing game, you know, about, you know, seven, eight years ago, and it was, is really different. You know, nowadays, I feel like if you're, you're opening a restaurant, you need to be a really good chef, maybe, and have really good food. Then you got to be a really good business owner and run the business well and, and pay everybody well. And then you have to be a really good marketer and then maybe a networker and all of these other things to be a part of the community because you know restaurants pop up every single day mm. 90% of them probably aren't going to make it how do you rise above the noise today you got to have a lot of these different tool like skills that you know i don't even know if regardless of who the entrepreneur is if if america was ready for that much middle eastern food i think like it took some time like halal to pop off i don't know what was like the pinnacle of like everyone started lining up at the trucks 
and the carts in New York City. But like we had, we've had like Zanko chicken out here on the West Coast. It's like a LA staple, and it caps out at like eleven locations. But they've been they've been on the block for a while. I don't I don't know if like people were ready for Middle Eastern food. Maybe now that's why I love what Halal Guys is doing. I don't care who's bringing it to to market. If people can see hummus and see rice and see chicken off a spit, like more the merrier. Like hopefully there are more chains like Halal Guys that present something even a little bit different. In my opinion. Yeah, and you have chains like uh, is it Mamoons? How do you- oh, Mamoons out in, uh, so, in New York. Yeah. So Mamoons Falafel, six locations in New York, announced this week that they're doing a Dallas location. Heck yeah! And uh, I didn't know that. And That's they're cool. and so they're being franchised by Franz Mart and all sorts of stuff, and so. I, I feel like that's only possible when you're seeing the traction that Halal guys are seeing in multiple metros, that there's this new swag and confidence level of like, hey, this is working. And when I go into a shopping center in Dallas, I see the burger joint, I see the barbecue joint, I see the sushi joint. What do I not see? I don't see the Middle Eastern joint in Dallas. So there's now 15 neighborhoods in Dallas that I can be the only spot that you know serves that type of cuisine. I think, I think we're, I think the the nation's ready. I mean, Mediterranean food, in general, it may not have the Instagram ability or the hype factor that other foods have, but the longevity factor. I mean, we we glossed over the fact that why are there lines at Halal Guys in New York? Because they've been around for 25 years. Yo, and you know? it's that, that's that good good. Though. <laughs> and, it's, that good, good. and it's that good good that's just been proven over time. But of course, I think the, the average millennial entrepreneur now, are they going to wait 25 years for something to pop off? Yeah. No, just, there's just been quality there. And now there's just the right time and there's the right aptitude in this country. I think there's going to be... I think the tornado of health hit U.S. pretty pretty good. Like... Middle Eastern food skews healthier. It skews less salty. It skews, I mean, halal doesn't kind of like fit that mold, which I think was like a a good segue, a good gateway drug for people. Because to be honest, a lot of my Middle Eastern friends like, oh, it's like kind of like the Del Taco or Taco Bell of Middle Eastern food. Like, God bless it. Like, let it, let it be that. Because now you know what hummus is, and you know what good rice is, you know what good chicken off the spit is. That's really dope. And then, like, hopefully, you get intrigued and now want to try someone else's falafel. Maybe go to a ma pa joint, and hopefully, more pockets of that pop up around the country. But I think it took a while for people to get acclimated, even with hummus, before hummus got mainstream and hit every Whole Foods. So I think that's cool, and this is like the right opportunity. I mean, you guys, ten locations almost, and in two years is insane. And the same thing is going on on NorCal for everyone. Like in Northern California, there's another group. I don't know them personally, but do you, Thomas? Like, Yeah, they are no, great guys too. And they're doing the same thing. And you know, San Francisco's got their spot and, and Berkeley. But you know, the funny thing is you guys brought up Zanku was amazing good food, mm. period. It don't, don't matter if you know the name or not, you're gonna walk in, eat a plate of their food, and be like, I'm coming back. And if you're an Angelino, sure. you know the name. Yeah, and Seth you Rogen the wears their shit. Like, that's <laughs> it. It's so good. And then, you know, you guys mentioned Mamoons, and Mamoons is so freaking oh good. They Stupid got hot good. sauce that might rival. Yeah, the laws, man. Do you just go in there? You get the sandwich. It fits right in your hand, and you can eat it at any time. And you know, you mentioned Dallas, Houston, Austin. Right, they all have halal guys now. Right, Mamoon's coming to Dallas as well. Are they? Yeah, so there's there's three halal guys in Houston. There's two uh, in Dallas. There's one in Austin, and now we got you got Mamoon's headed to Dallas as well, which is crazy, and it's so good. 
The falafel yeah. there is nuts, man. Yeah, Mamoon's is so good. I mean, have you? Did you guys hear uh, about this uh, bodega issue? The the bodega technology that just came out. Costa what's, wrote an what's article a bodega about it. technology thing. So um, the idea, uh, Fasco did this this piece on a two uh, X Googlers who two X Google employees who created something called Bodega. It's basically this fancy fancy in air quotes vending machine that's supposed to kind of replace the idea of a bodega which is kind of whack in my opinion but it's i think it's more fast co maybe that's Eli, positioning I mean, that maybe talk about what a bodega is i don't know if everybody knows what a bodega is i mean a bodega is like a, a good corner store it's a good staple of a community that houses the kind of stuff you need like and anything from like a really dope bagel sandwich to like a box of condoms to speed stick to gum and and Beer, beer, beer cigarettes. Yeah. It's your corner cigarettes. store. You usually know the guy running it, guy or gal. Usually family runs. Small Stop by for coffee in the morning. Yeah. And the big thing is they tend to be popular in immigrant neighborhoods and ethnic neighborhoods. And I think that's what that's what sparked the controversy. Right? Mm. Is you're having two ex Googlers start a company named Bodega that at least in the Fasco article was fashioned to be to put mom and pop bodegas out of business whether that was media spin or whether that's more or less the actual intent i mean at the end of the day they're trying to have a successful business they're they're going to be competing with bodegas so if they want to scale their business they absolutely want to put them out of business but are they upfront and saying that i don't think so because that's bad pr they would never say that and there's obviously there's been a an apology uh, by Paul McDonald, who was the founder, and they're not necess- They're reviewing something like a name change. They didn't say they were going to change it, but that just has. I mean, if wh- they change the name, do you feel any different? If they like called it a fancy vending machine, do you give a shit more or less? Like, I think that the technology is applicable to our generation, and that if it was easy to walk into somewhere that you could just two taps get your diapers because you needed to go up to your three-story like walk-up apartment in new york i think you're going to do that and i think that's easy so i think the the opportunity is there for sure whether the name yeah i get why people are pissed i'm not personally pissed i don't have a i don't have a bodega i don't live in a in a place where they're real i mean there are corner stores and there are liquor stores but i don't feel some type of way about them yeah but i imagine that there are a ton of people that do and obviously that was proven when that fasco article went viral so the, the technology in this in this bo- quote-unquote bodega machine just so people who ha- haven't seen what this is, it's 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 a fancy vending machine, but it looks more like a cabinet system. So you kind of open it up, you get the item you want. There's some sensory stuff in there. There's some radar shit. It's read your eyes. Like, I mean, is it like the size of a? I mean, what's this? It, I think the they, they they vary in size, um, but imagine it could be a like a small cabinet or smaller than an Amazon locker. Because um, I'm thinking they're they're like eight feet by two feet in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. So literally something that's you know, uh, TV entertainment center wide and a couple or long and a couple of feet wide. That's just filled the brim with stuff. And it's all like the, the usual stuff that you need. So it varies based on where they place the bodega. And here's part of the reason why I actually think people are way too sensitive to this. And I'm probably gonna get some shit for this, but I think because we caught like immediately we're like, fuck them. They called it bodega. Fuck them. They used a cat logo. So a cat is like apparently this, 
meme that was generated online. There's always cats kind of floating around bodegas. So they used a cat head as the logo for bodega. Instead of talking about the technology that may or may not be cool, like we're too busy talking about how sensitive we are to the name versus like, do we actually think this product could be cool if it was called something else? I think that the whole media spin, and before we even publish an article on it, the reason why we didn't just come out the gate and just like hit the tidal wave with like, of course these guys are fucking insensitive. Of course they're all this shit. Like we spent some time and talked about it in the office because we weren't talking about the technology. Like if someone could put a machine in our office that, again, the, the machines cater to base where you are. So like they can create a quote unquote bodega and put it inside your gym and it would have the exact uh, muscle milk that you like, the protein, the, shake. the protein shake that you want, uh, a, a, a rag for you to wipe your sweat down with. Like it can be custom tailored to wherever they put it. And people were missing that part of it. Like, of course it's gonna hamper businesses for Bodega, but like, are we not gonna try to advance shit? And the it's name like is really fancy. It's like a really fancy vending machine. Exactly. It's a, a very fancy vending machine. Um, but like, I was just upset with how sensitive people were about it that we weren't even looking at the tech. Like, if the tech sucked, let's make fun of the tech. Let's, but like, I don't want like a potential company to go under like Cook's Burritos. We're like, fuck, maybe like I need a vending machine in the office or, or just around the corner because we don't have bodegas out here in Santa Ana to, um, to kind of fill my needs. If I need a soda real quick and I can't get it, go to this machine, like that's going to help me more than it hinders me. Do you think we're too sensitive towards mom and pops? Because Hell yeah. Because and I, I think I in general, that, right? Yeah. In general... When you say like the mom and pop, that's a, I feel like that's a positive saying, right? Mm. Right. Uh, because, oh, independent, right? I think in my head, I think that main street in Berkeley where they don't allow chains and it's like everyone's mom and pop and everyone's independent and go small business, which again, I'm a fan of small business. I want that to stick around. But if a mom and pop isn't going to innovate, if you're gonna create a corner store and just do the same business model for generations and you don't adapt, isn't that on them? That's tough. And, and I think as much as I, I the, the problem is, do I want the world to be a bunch of smartphone app cabinets? <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm ready for that either because I love that personal interaction. I loved the story of that business owner, yeah. but at the same time, it's, the onus is on them to adapt as well. And the last time I've gone into any bodega or corner store, I'd imagine it looks 99% the same as it did 10 years ago, 95% the same as it did 20 years ago, and 90% the same as it did 25, 30 years ago. That's not innovation. That's, that's sitting on your laurels and relying on... <laughs> U.S. consumption of booze and cigarettes to bring enough people through your door that they'll buy other stuff. Yeah. Well, you, well, you know, for, for restaurants, you know, there's so much change going on right now because not only is minimum wage going up, right? McDonald's got all their machines inside where people are actually ordering more food than from a person because yeah. it's just a click, click. I'll do ice cream for a dollar more. Boom, I'll take one too, you know? Yeah. But for us, even at the restaurants, and, and, you know, we consult for a lot of restaurants across the country, you got to be on maybe Uber Eats, right? You yeah. got to have online or ordering on your website you got to ramp up your website you don't even have one yeah uh, you got to be able to take you know deliveries you got to be able to have a mobile app that allows you to order and get your food you know i mean you have to be on top of it because you're not then it's not convenient 
and it's not up to date, and then people just can't get access to your food. It's not easy enough. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think the bodega issue is the same thing as the Uber and cab driver issue. In my opinion, it's the exact same thing. What's going on? Like, if if we felt bad for the cab drivers who like tried to hold out and said Uber was fucking awful for the industry, it's awful for them as entrepreneurs, and I feel for them as entrepreneurs who are owning their own cabs or leasing their cabs and doing that. But the consumer is going to speak. If I can go to my phone and press "I need a ride" this very instant, you win as Uber. Like so, the bodega—it's awful. Like it doesn't. The idea of uh, like if I need something from a bodega and I can just get it from this machine. As much as like I would love to be talking to the bodega owner, if I need a box of condoms, like at the end of the day, I would rather get it from a machine and not look someone dead ass in the <laughs> eye. Yeah. Right. So like, if if we're gonna make fun of bodega all we want, people are gonna go out there and and, and do it. Let's say they go under tomorrow. Someone else is just going to come with a more culturally appropriate name and do the exact same thing. And bodega owners are still going to be in the same shit boat that they're in. Agreed. So, I, I agree. I, where I differ with you, though, is the fact that what ties bodega and you mentioned, is it kooks or cooks? Kooks? <laughs> kooks sounds it's racist kooks. as shit. Yeah. I just don't know what the, But yeah, but it's out in... Um, so, and you referenced system. kooks for a second, but to give our listenership the 411 so in may of this year you had two millennial caucasian females report to a magazine that they went down to mexico more or less watched people making tortillas long enough to copycat that recipe and then bring it back to portland and for the most part, I think they were getting positive reviews of their food in this interim before this interview until they gave a quote that kind of shut the internet down. And here's the quote because I think people... Read the quote because they damn themselves with the quote. So the quote is, I picked the brains of every tortilla lady there in the worst broken Spanish ever and they showed me a little of what they did. They told us the basic ingredients and we saw them moving and stretching the dough similar to how pizza makers do before rolling it out with rolling pins. They wouldn't tell us too much about the technique, but we were peeking into the windows of every kitchen, totally fascinated by how easy they made it look. We learned quickly it isn't that it isn't quite that easy. So that's a that's a quote given to, you know, a major publication within the within the Portland area. And then the internet broke because of potentially prideful or condescending or culturally appropriate culturally stealing, appropriated like stealing recipes. And within, I believe within weeks, they, they shut down because it, it was a pop-up in Portland. Within, with, Costa's telling me within one week, their pop-up was shut down. That sucks. And here's, here's why I'm making the compar- comparison to Bodega, is it's a perception issue is if they had never told a publication that they more or less stole, which again, and that's a media perception that's problem a too. That that's a, a spin. spin. But because the media took that story, ran with it and said that they stole the recipe, they had to, they had to shut their shit down. And similar with Bodega, the fact that they attached a very ethnically ringing name to their technology 
they deserve that outlash because that's just something you need to be better. You need to be, and this is to your point, T-Fam, that in addition to all the things that you have to be in the restaurant, you also have to be media savvy. And when you're not media savvy, and then the press can kind of do what they want with your words, and in this culture of we're getting out a story every minute of every day, Ah, but the t- the line was so thin for these for these two gals in in Portland because I bet you they thought they were media savvy. I bet you they were like, you know, we're gonna tell this story of how we actually went to Mexico and basically learned and and tr- are trying to pay the best homage we can because out in Portland our Mexican food is shit. Like when it shut down, the same waves there. There's equal parts ways that people were like, yeah, good, good riddance. Like, get out of here. Also, they're like, man, I was like a California transplant. I'm trying to get a burrito and I can't now. Like, can you guys stop being so damn sensitive? Like, these girls just went and learned how to make burritos for us, and now we have a burrito spot. Now I don't have shit. I gotta go back to Chipotle. And it's not like they opened the burrito spot right next to you know wherever they learned it from next yeah, door to yeah. shut somebody down. Like, you're not gonna make the you're in Portland. You're not making the pilgrimage down to Mexico and getting the real thing. Also, burritos aren't a real thing from Mexico, right? Like, but they're learning how to make tortillas. I think where they did damn themselves is basically admitting that they like when when someone didn't give them the recipe, they stayed around and basically stole it. That's where they kind of damn themselves. Like, learn how to say less. Sure. <laughs> um, so they they thought they were media savvy. Generally, it's a good play. T- go out and tell your story about how like you actually went to Mexico to learn a little bit, like learn where it really comes from. Because people want to say, like, if I'm going to cook, you know, a certain item of food, I want to say I went to the motherland to learn how to do it. Yeah. French food, I was in Paris learning how to cook it, not, you know, wherever else, right? So for them, they were probably thinking that, and of course the media spun it, and yeah. then boom. Like, yeah. look at your story. I think you have, like, with the halal guys, like, you went and learned on the cart, but you have the cosign of the founders. You have the cosign of Middle Eastern people, um, and, and that's where you really can, like, well, great, go tell our story on the West Coast. I think that's where you have more legs maybe than these gals who ran the burrito shop. And if you can, me as a Middle Eastern person, dude, if you can put hummus on more people's platters, like you have my full support. And I also don't think, and I'm speaking for you for a second, T-Fam, but I don't think you're out there on, on the block going, I'm the one bringing Middle Eastern food to the masses. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I'm, I'm spinning that. I'm, right now, I'm yeah. bringing hello guys to places where it doesn't exist, and we're going to give you the most quality that we can. And I think that's a that's the that's a difference, right? It's not just like confidently proclaiming that I'm the reason Middle Eastern food is good. That's a that's a very different thing, and that'd be a very different discussion if you approached it that way. But if you're just bringing Middle Eastern food for the most part. And the most major way that I've seen in North America, for that matter, then like kudos to you, because uh, that's amazing. And Middle Eastern food is amazing. And I've been lucky to have <laughs> three Lebanese guys here at Food Beast, which is a huge ratio for the amount of people that we have. And you know, I've had Eli's mom's cooking all the time. What's hey. up, Lena? Hey. <laughs> What's up, Lena? She doesn't listen, bro. She doesn't know how to download the iTunes podcast. <laughs> Eli's uh, catering coming soon. But like, I, I wish there were more chains here, and I, we've been having this discussion last. We're trying to figure out why there aren't more Middle Eastern chains. Why? Why not? Like, why? What, why has it taken this long? What are there challenges right now? Like, as halal guys open, all I see are lines. But there's got to be some challenges. You know, I think it's up because you know people, other than you know trying to, you know, for us, we were very 
we knew media and, and we own a marketing company and that, that was a big piece of reason why somebody in New York that has an amazing concept would even allow us to take it because of that one key reason. Thomas, you guys know how to talk about the brand and you guys love it so much and you're passionate about it. You know, we didn't, we didn't own a hundred McDonald's or like 50 pizza huts mm. or something, right? We really just cared about really good food and how do we bring it to our homies, you know, back home here, you know, in the local community. Yeah. Uh, but for us, it's, uh, if you're able to talk about the narrative the right way, you know, because if, if you open a halal, guys, and you don't talk about New York City, you don't talk about the food carts, you don't talk about 25 years in business, third most shelter restaurant in the world, then really it's just like a new mom and pop restaurant pop up, nobody knows about it, and you're gonna try your luck, right? Just like the 90 restaurants that close every year. But because we came to the city with the right narrative, talking about it, you know, having everybody, a lot of people who are LA, New York, going back and forth, know about it, we had a little bit of an upper hand and a little bit more momentum which kept the lines moving, you know? Yeah, 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 I mean, it was fun following your story because I was like, oh, this dude spent, if you follow Thomas on Instagram and they did a great job building out Instagram accounts and social media on this side of them spending time in New York with the founders and kind of learning that process. So I knew when it opened here, it was gonna taste somewhat relatable to the New York product. I think I think you guys have like followed the ingredient system down to a T. I think you guys could be greasier. <laughs> to be honest, I'm just out of like everyone loves halal guys, but I, I think you guys could be greasier here on the West Coast, man. Let some, yeah. let some uh, get a B rating for once. <laughs> Come on, like that's the only the only feedback I gotten is like, man, it's just like not as like it's, it's not it's, it's not, not as greasy, on the streets but, on the concrete. Well, yeah, it's not a, yeah, <laughs> a little dirt a, in it. Yeah, bro, give me a little uh, concrete in there. Just stop washing our pans. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, do you guys? Because when you go to halal guys in, in New York. It's, it's like one flat top, from what I remember, and everything is on, on the there. flat top. Rice is sitting with the chicken, with the meat, yeah. with the, like, it's just, it's crazy. And yeah. you, you guys do a great job here of keeping everything kind of like cut clean and beautiful. Um, I mean, Orange County, and L do we have uh, ratings like A, B, and C, or is it just like you either pass or fail? I mean, you either pass or fail, but you also definitely have ratings and stuff too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so they have A's here. I'm trying to get some. They got A's in New York I'm too. Trying to get some C, I'm trying to get some C-rated halal, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got a question for you guys. Holler. So, how culturally aware of basically all cultures that exist in the U.S. do restaurant tours have to be in order to not make a huge faux pas, right? Because you, T-Fam, you've already talked about how hard it is to be a contemporary restaurateur already. And then on top of that, you're supposed to resonate with cultures outside of your own enough to, to not make flagrant decisions. And I think that's, I want that for all of humanity, but then I'm also trying, what's the operation side and logistics of that? Because even here at Food Beast, right? I'm uh, a partner in, a publication and we do news stories constantly i'm reading constantly i'm watching our writers put together stories and i'm still deathly afraid of one of our staffers doing something culturally inappropriate and black twitter getting a hold of it or mm. or some sort of asian american group that didn't like the way we described pho versus something else and that's t it's terrifying it's probably one of the things that probably keeps me up most at night is I know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. And as much as we do our best within our 15 person organization to have 
as diverse a group as possible here? Like, how is there actually steps forward to prevent kooks from happening? Because I don't think there is. I think people will just go about their business and they'll misstep and there'll be news cycles and the news cycles will continue because the media is specifically looking for ethnically charged stories to get a headline. Like, the Mike version of the of the kook story was how they went to Mexico and stole recipes, right? Like that was in the headline, they stole recipes. And the business side of me is like, man, I bet they got a lot of clicks and they weren't factually wrong. Right, Mm. right. But the the other side is like, man, you, did they really? What's scary is we, we as foodies, we as media perpetuated that way. We do. At the same time, like it, we are too, we are too worried as a culture right now of offending like and we're gonna stifle ourselves and we're we're at fault for it at at food beast and at, at media as large but like the idea that's why i'm so passionate about us being careful how we talk about bodega because if these guys legitimately had a technology that we just shat on and dirted and stunted because they have to close tomorrow what did we just do like what Imagine this spin we could have had if if we didn't like Thomas, if we didn't like Halal guys, and we're like a bunch of Vietnamese dudes are bringing Middle Eastern food over. That spin could have taken off and gone and deaded something in the tracks. That's awful because we're too, we would have been, we could have been too sensitive, too critical, and missed out on amazing Middle Eastern food on our coast and that could happen because now portland portland has a great food scene so saying that like i don't apologize for it but saying that like they lost they lost out on a burrito joint that was above average because it was getting high reviews and high marks out the gate and got shut down for not being pc enough for the whole thing yeah like i i would say you know for food uh it's for me personally, I think media is really right. Obviously for you guys, you guys always be careful what you say and, and what's going on in the news. But for food, you know, food is something that brings people together, right? Mm-hmm. Something that people are gonna eat and they're gonna continue to eat 10 years from now, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, and to be honest, there's a lot of restaurants, whether it be sushi or, you know, other restaurants that Japanese food, but somebody else is cooking it. Or Chinese food, but somebody else Hell is cooking yeah. it, right? Or cheeseburger, somebody else is cooking it. So with food, I think it's a little bit different, right? It's not as sensitive of maybe something where this is community-based, community-based bodega might be a little bit different, but food, I mean, we can walk into 30 restaurants of certain cultures and I guarantee there's gonna be different people working there. Oh, yeah. Dude, know? I just learned today that uh, California rolls, we have the Canada thing. We can't, <laughs> it's just brilliant. Oh, so who, who created, without Canada, the United States would not have such an affinity with Japanese with Japanese culture and sushi. And I think like the idea of like 30 or 40 years ago, um, some some amazing Japanese chef decided, you know, the way that we're going to get these Americans to eat is let's hide that seaweed on the inside, put some cook, some like half cooked crab and cucumber and shit and like make sushi palatable for them. If it wasn't for a California roll, it's probably the first roll I ever had. I wouldn't have like gone to nigiri or gone gone to nigiri next step because i'm like damn if this like white boy sushi is this good like the real thing has to be amazing so i don't care if all guys the first thing that a white person or someone that's not middle eastern tastes if they like enjoy it enough to ask more questions like it was a positive step forward food should not be that fucking serious and like 
And who, who doesn't right? want to eat good food, right? Yeah. I mean, I want to try stuff all the time. And I, you know, we speak, I don't know other areas that well. I love Portland. Portland's got great food. But down here, you know, people, people are, are spoiled, man. There's so mm-hmm. much good food here that people eat something different almost every single day. Different cuisine, different food, different prices. Yeah. Um, different prices for the same food, you know. Yeah, we're blessed, yo. <laughs> yeah. So when I was growing up and I would go to an ethnic restaurant, I'd have a family member that would associate the quality of the food with the direct ethnic representation of that person, right? So we'd go into a teppanyaki joint, right? And if the chef wasn't Japanese or Asian enough to look Japanese, this family member would like deep sigh. <sighs> Ooh. <laughs> like that. Ooh. Like, like that oh, as... Man. As the, as, the, as, as the chef is rolling his cart and you're seeing like it's Jesus on the name tag, <laughs> deep sigh from, from one of my family members. I think we're at a place where our generation doesn't do that. No way. I think. Now, are there going to be We've made, egregious I've examples made of that? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Are we, can, are we, there are going to be jokes about Yeah, but you're still eating it? the food and you're still coming Pop- back. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> but I just like, I mean, again, and we talked about this on the pod. I have a different view because of, of working in the restaurant industry a bit and seeing the ethnic representation of fine dining cuisine and who was in the back of the kitchen and how it didn't matter. But yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a bit of a baby boomer thing, right? Where... You go to a Japanese restaurant and there's like an absolute, complete, 100% expectation that this person is Japanese. And what I thought was funny was in high school is when I learned all the sushi spots by my house were owned by Korean Americans. And my dad, (laughs) but they, they don't fret. Right when it's like, oh, but it's it's an Asian guy doing it, so this must be legit, and it's like the completely different culture, <laughs> yeah. but they just both ties into Asian American culture, right? Yeah, I, I laugh super hard because my family does the same thing. Like, you know, they they go they make fun of it. Like, you go Pan Express, and like everyone running the line is is white and Mexican, but like. like who cares? Like, you can learn yeah, it. Like, really, who cares? Yeah, yeah, who cares? Like, fuck, the orange chicken is amazing. Like. It is what it is. Um, orange chicken, man. <laughs> like, like, who don't order the orange chicken when you're Side there? note, orange chicken, though. <laughs> Can we have an orange chicken moment? Yeah. I just want to bathe in orange chicken. Um, there, frankly, there aren't enough Lebanese people to open enough Lebanese restaurants and run the line. Like, I went, to, I just tried. I was biking the other night, and I ran to this Lebanese restaurant um, that I didn't fucking like. But I, I went there, and I was like, I'll try it. And not a Lebanese person on the line. And it, it, it just, I already got out there that I didn't like it. The idea of it existing and like bringing Middle Eastern food there was, was enough for me. But I realized they needed help running that spot. And I'm kind of seeing a little bit of a trend of like Middle Eastern restaurateurs. And there's, there's Middle Eastern restaurateurs and there's Middle Eastern restaurant owners and a lot of them are really good restaurant owners they're passionate about their product they're maybe bringing in a recipe from a family but they're they don't know how to scale like the best example we had in southern california was zanko chicken and it stopped at 11 locations like huge family controversies yeah huge family controversies kind of deaded it and lebanese people are crazy like (laughs) (laughs) um but but that's the biggest concept we had in the United States of America. 
But I, you know, I got to say it's hard, man. You know, so we, we do marketing for so many brands and, and we're trying to help businesses grow, some small, some large. And it's tough to be above all the noise, right? With media and social media and all these things going on. I mean, everybody's rolling the dice, right? We, the three of us could open a restaurant tomorrow and maybe nobody ever shows up. Sure. You know, you just never really know. I mean, if we knew it was going to be banging and pouring millions of dollars out, then we would go do it tomorrow, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. But we don't even know if we would make it. And even some of our closest friends, you know, have open stuff, had huge backing and support, but there's just so many choices. So imagine somebody that maybe have not so many friends trying to open something and do something for their family. It's just hard to win today, yeah. right? You gotta have every single, like, if there's 12 buckets and you gotta do them all, you can't skip out on one bucket and only do 11. You gotta try and push number 12 too. Because yeah. even if you push all 12 buckets on marketing, on, on operations, hospitality, you still rolling the dice. You don't know if you're gonna make it. Yeah. It's so hard because the margins are so low, right? Our the Middle Eastern restaurants that you frequent or that you know mm-hmm. are are a majority of them family run, and by family run, not only just like family ownership, but like cousins, the waiter, are they in there? yeah, yeah, or they've got family members helping with operations and bookkeeping. What's the what's the average Middle Eastern restaurant that you've kind of seen? Because I might have some follow up questions depending on. For sure, I mean the Lebanese restaurants that like uh, that I would go to lean more white tablecloth lean more sit down lead more lean more like almost like eastern culture in general not just middle eastern but the idea of like like spanish tapas like you want to sit down you want to enjoy so like it's kind of hard to translate that and kind of bastardize it into like fast casual because that's a little bit more expensive right it's more expensive so you have a price point issue you have a speed issue so like i don't have two hours for lunch so i have a lebanese restaurant i can go to in orange but i don't have two hours to go there. I don't want to talk to a waiter for so long. Um, well, and that category is experiencing, they're hemorrhaging. Yeah, no one, so wa- like no one with, wants that right With now. this expanded, fast, casual, taking all the, seemingly all the money from at least our generation. That, I mean, I, you know, I can't, I don't remember, it was probably four years ago in when, there was a group of us that actually sat down for a two-hour Middle Eastern meal. Yeah. But since then, I don't think I've done that once. I think the problem with uh, the Lebanese network that I know, you either lean to be the most gaudy person on the block or you lean to be the most humble business owner you can. And so what that leads to when you open a restaurant, you either open something the size of Golden Knights. And so for those who aren't familiar, Golden Knights is something that's like damn near 30,000 square feet, like waterfalls and like belly dancers. And they have restaurants like these all across Southern California, Carousel and Glendale. They're Caspian parties, Knights, right? Caspian <laughs> on the Persian side. Yeah, like you, you're gaudy, you enjoy a good time out. And I, gaudy in a positive sense, like you enjoy a good time out. You enjoy dinner and a show. And then you have the mom and pa spots. Like you have a mini kebab that our friend uh, Armin runs. Like two tables in the spot, delicious food. But like what's your scale there? There, Like just delicious food, very humble, very delicious food at that spot. And so there's there's like no – at least in, in California and in, in the United States, there's a very there's no middle ground there. Like no mm. one has really cracked that code. I think there are people that will. I think we're in I think there's a there's a feeling right now in, in the United States where people are ready for Middle Eastern food. Daphne's did some good groundwork and people are bored of them. But I think like with halal guys, 
um, with Donor G Semsum, which is I just learned about this uh, entrepreneur from Lebanon who brought Dunkin' Donuts franchises to, to Lebanon. She opened okay. like 20 in a couple years. Amazing. And Lebanon is the size of less Le than California? Like how Lebanon's big is Lebanon? population is less than Orange County. Oh, wow. Like that's how small a footprint Lebanon technically is to the rest of the world. So, so the, it's like she brought 20 locations to Orange County. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like crazy. In, in theory, in the way that time works, overnight. And so she's trying to bring that with her Middle Eastern concept back. She opened three restaurants in New York hey. that are called Simpson. I don't know if you're familiar, Tom, but I just learned about this. So I think there's people that have the ability to crack this code. I think there are good entrepreneurs out there. There's a good network of support for them that aren't of the same culture. And it doesn't matter, in my opinion. It, you don't have to be of that culture to learn and appreciate that culture and help spread that. And notice at the end of the day, like money talks. So if there's money to be had there, like people will find it. Like you found Halal Guys, you saw the opportunity and you were just like, this is good food, there's a need and I'm gonna make some money off of this. At the end of the day, you wouldn't have done it. At the end of, like you don't have time for just to have fucking fun and slang Middle Eastern food <laughs> if it didn't make you a lot of money. So Well, and if you're the family restaurateur that's not thinking about margin, not thinking about food costs, and not thinking about Ooh. scalability, then the question is, like, are you going to be around in 10 years? Because the way you're seeing quick service absorb that huge section, like, whatever, $900 billion of the economy spent on food... If you're not thinking about the biggest growing and part of it, then what are you, then what are you doing, right? I hope they exist. Because the thing is, is like, as Del Taco grows, as Taco Bell grows, doesn't make me want to go to a taqueria any less. It doesn't make me want to not search out authentic Mexican food any less, right, right. right? But I still enjoy Taco Bell and Del Taco on my late nights because I know there's a drive-thru. But I also, when I'm in the mood for like a really dope taco, we go to taco truck number three right here in Santa Ana and we're good. So like, I hope there's a place for that. And I think the bigger, the, the bigger spread of like the bigger names in the industry, like so for Mexican food, as shitty as it is to say, Taco Bell is like perpetuating the idea of tacos and burritos and quesadillas. Like it's not authentic, but it is spreading the word. Um, and Taco Bell filled the void for a lot of people in like middle America, people that like don't, aren't ne right next to Mexico and getting that beauty. Um, people in New York weren't anywhere near any sort of Spanish culture. Um, like it's good, it's overall good for them. And I hope that like the growth of chains, if we're talking Middle Eastern here, the growth of Middle Eastern chains, I hope that actually helps mom pa spots. I hope that allows you to seek out more places on Yelp that serve that really dope halal meat that I had, but now I want to try someone else's. Yeah, like, I hope it helps. You know, the funny thing is, like, if you say, you know, Thomas, where'd you eat, you know, the last, like, three or four days or whatever, you know, I'd say the majority of the places are single unit, you know, mom and pop owned somewhere in Costa Mesa, LA, wherever. But I also worry that, you know, business owners, you know, like that are, aren't, aren't looking at the numbers, aren't staring at the P&L, mm. right? Don't know what their margins are, don't know how much of it, because things are about to change, right? Not only is there a new restaurant popping up next to you every other day, right? That seems to really know what they're doing. Overnight, they know what they're doing, right? Because mm. young people trying to just push, 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 run faster. But on top of that, minimum wage going up, right? And that's scary. Rent's going up. Yep. Yeah. So all these things are going up, but if your prices don't go up, 
can you keep up? And then how much you're going to spend on marketing? Well, the restaurant sucks. I'm going to cancel marketing. The restaurant's good. I'm going to cancel marketing. <laughs> you know, all of these things are questions that business owners, I don't know if they're prepared to answer them. And if you're not, you're going to be in a tough spot in one or two years when all of these numbers change and all the neighboring concepts are different. Right? Yeah, because I'm not worried about us. I think the three of us for the, the rest of our lives, we're going to find mom and pop stops in addition to all the other types of food that we eat. But what about Gen Z? What about the, the person that's going to live off food delivery or mm. that's going to only order off of or at least research restaurants off of technology? Do those mom and pops still exist? And I don't think so. And that's why I think you have to, you have to adapt. There will always be a version of a mom and pop, but it'll be the mom and pop that said, you know what? I'm going to make sure I'm on Yelp and I'm going to make sure I'm on locations and I'm going to put up some semblance of a website. And if I can get to the app because my son or daughter knows that it's a great idea and I'm going to make an investment in that, I think they're going to still be around. I'm just saying if you sit on your laurels and don't make any even minor adjustments, then at least as long as this restaurant bubble is still happening, like you're going to be put out of business because there's just not there's just not enough mouths for all the food that's being created. But check this, check this. What if imagine something like Uber Eats, Yelp delivery, whatever becomes 100%. Just just imagine a world where it's 100%. Wouldn't that help a mom pa? Wouldn't that put a mom pa on the same playing field as Taco Bell because it doesn't matter how if many they're on board. board if they're on board. If they're yeah. on board. Touche. That's where I do right. I do agree that like get yeah, be on Uber Eats. Be on, be on these things, but it doesn't not, with Uber Eats, say Uber Eats is the only way to order food. It doesn't matter if there's a hundred Taco Bells in one city versus one mom and pa shop that's one listing on Uber Eats. Right. Like I want falafel, right? I want a taco right now. I either get taco from Taco Maria or I get a taco from Taco Bell. Same listing. So essentially, in a world where if you wanted to imagine it's only food delivery on one food app, it's on the same playing field. It actually works in the benefit of a mom and pa shop. Well, I think, but at the same time, Taco Bell knows that 64% of its margin is going off of this item and it's being delivered. And the mo if the mom and pa is on the app, but doesn't know that when someone orders hummus delivered that it's actually costing them money, sure. Sure. Then, then it doesn't help them at all. Yeah. And so I think that's something where you have to, as a business owner, and I know TFAM encourages this probably to every one of his clients, know your business well enough to where, yeah, it makes sense for you guys to do delivery because you can still make similar margins. But if you can't, then Taco Bell's gonna own that shit. Mm -hmm. And then you're gonna, yes, you're gonna, there's an evening of the playing field that you're gonna see Taqueria next to Taco Bell on your delivery app. But then if you're not ready for that game, like you're just gonna get blown out of the water. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Or if you're behind, right? If, if, if you're not on the app today and all of a sudden a lot of people are on there using it and they stop ordering from you because you're not on the app and then all of a sudden you're out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> Then all of a sudden your business starts to fall because nobody talking about you. For and sure. then, you know, six months from zero people talking about you. And then you're just out of business, right? Because you couldn't catch the wave in six months. And we all know restaurants, low margin, right? So 
you know, for us, it's if you're not if you're not just cranking every single day, you're, you're gonna be in a tough time because you're paying your employees no matter what to stand there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it takes a very just takes a few days off the month that you don't make any sales and you're closed shop. Right. Yeah, that's what's super scary. About you gotta pay rent no matter what. You gotta pay the people standing in the restaurant no matter what. Yeah. Whether yeah. or not people come. You know? Yeah. That's yeah. That's that's crazy. It can move fast, right? Because you just need three days where you your restaurant's not open, you close shop, right? I mean, I can pay for everything. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Here's my prediction. I think that we're about to experience a scalable Middle Eastern renaissance of food across the US. Like for sure. I think that I think that's happening without a doubt. I think you see that in Southern California. Obviously, you guys set the tone, but I think you're seeing that with Donor G. I think you're seeing that with now with the with the Mamoons announcement. Mamoons. Like it's coming. It the food's just too good. It's too good. And and maybe it doesn't have the awareness it should, but I think it's it's coming now. You know, I think mm. again, I don't think it's going to be the same rainbow pastry type hype. But then once people bite into that falafel, if you've never had it, because here's the turnoffs: oh, I'm not a vegetarian. I don't want that shit. Have you tried it? Because once you try it, you want it forever. There's going to be a cleanse of American palate real soon. Like where you're sick of the rainbow trend. Where you're sick of it and you're just like... Yo, I'm sick of the rainbow trend. Well, we are, yeah. Like, <laughs> we just interviewed an intern today. I was like, what's one thing you hate about like what's your, the worst food trend? I was like, rainbow shit. I was like, you're hired. <laughs> um, unicorn flavored. Unicorn flavored. But I do think there's going to be a rise of people that can build a consistent product like we talked about this a couple podcasts ago where we actually mentioned hello guys we're like there's like the in and outs of the world and the halal guys where it's not about the showmanship of like what it looks like on instagram you happen to crack the code though of like making it look better halal guys has been around and it was like this kind of cult thing in new york but i never really saw a photo of it until you guys kind of brought it to the west coast and seeing your guys's marketing and angle of it which i think you guys deserve due credit for uh, so you, you made it look good you made it look good and i think that if you crack that half of it the food will speak for itself and it'll actually keep resonating there's sustenance to it you can eat it a couple times a week and not feel awful about it um so yeah man do you have a non-compete could we like all invest in <laughs> maybe it's just me and Jeff. We'll as many middle eastern <laughs> concepts as we can find um but yeah man all right that's i feel that's Uncover some I feel stuff, good. Man. I feel okay. good. Ethnic authenticity. So, I mean, what did we learn? I feel like it doesn't matter what you're like. If you can just be authentic and kind of help, and don't be an asshole. Them, don't be a hole. I, I felt. I felt like I read that multiple in multiple articles that were addressing the topic. Like, if you didn't come off as an asshole, you wouldn't have been labeled as an asshole. Mm. So just, just don't do that. You can learn from other cultures. You can adapt from other cultures. Like. That's food from the beginning of time. Yeah. Right. But also, you know, do your homework and be at least somewhat culturally aware because... Well, that goes back to it, right? I mean, a restaurant owner now not only needs to cook the food right and do all yeah. the things in the four walls, now every word they say, they got to make sure like they're saying the right thing too. Welcome you know? to the restaurant biz, man. I still, I, we were talking to Chef Cody Stortz last week about the underbelly of the restaurant business. You guys should listen to that podcast. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, it's a, I mean, eight to 15% margins on something with the highest liability and food costs and, and major investment up front. Like, whoa, I, every time 
I'm just like, why is this so popular? This is one of the hardest dollars to make in America, and people just can't get enough of it. It's crazy. People so got to eat. Let's start a restaurant. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we wouldn't even make it, dude. <laughs> we would have made it so hard. Dude, it's so tough, man. Oh, man. You know the clickbait on this is going to be like, Vietnamese guy opens the <laughs> <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> There's not like people out here. You know, they, they, they've been following You can't times, believe man. what he said. <laughs> Uh, that's our amazing outro this week. <laughs> T fan, where can everyone follow you, bro? Instagram, what's the nine? Uh, you know the Hello Guys SoCal. Um, mm-hmm. That's for all the restaurants in Southern California. Um, and then you guys can follow our uh, our foodie page, Eaters Anonymous. Yep, love yep. that page. Yep. We're posting all of the good stuff while we're trying out here in Southern California. And then I'm T fam. At T fam, your account's private, bro. You can't even shut <laughs> a private account now. I don't. Dude, I, I don't it. update it, man. I don't got time to update all that. Dude. I got you. I got you. And uh, this has been uh, at Book of Eli and at Jeffrey Cutnick. Yes, sir. Yep. Follow us at Food Beast, and uh, really appreciate everyone listening. And every time you guys let us know what you heard. Um, we really do appreciate that. So when you tweeted us, when you leave a review, you tell us in person if you see uh, Jeff I or Thomas in the streets. We really appreciate that. We got a shout out or a giveaway this week. We can do a giveaway. Let's do it. I mean, you guys, we're doing giveaways all the time on Instagram. Uh, should we do like a hundred dollar giveaway to uh, Halal guys? Yes, sir. Let's do a hundred dollar giveaway to Halal guys. If you're in Orange County, I happen to know a fair amount of us listening are in Orange County. They're opening a Tustin location. Um, we'll try to finagle a hundred dollar gift card and all you need to do to enter is what, what do we want? Leave a comment in that app store. Leave a comment on iTunes for us. Good or bad. Just let us know. Tell us your favorite episode. Tell us Eli should talk less, whatever you guys want. Um, and we're going to pick one of those comments and we'll announce it next week and we'll let you guys know. We'll shout you out in the podcast and get your contact info. So just all leave that a white sauce. All that. Hey. Double up on the white sauce. <laughs> um, a little bit of hot sauce. Just a little bit of the hot sauce. Or if you're flexing, put a bunch. <laughs> Try halal guys out if you have not. Um, anyways, thank you again for listening, guys. Bye. Later. <laughs>